critical thing in my life, fundamental change, is when I moved to Jasper. I lived in Banff, Alberta for a while, then I moved to Jasper, Alberta. And uh, I got really, when you live, when you're a young person, probably anybody, but when you're a young person in particular living in uh, the mountains, it's kind of like they call to you. Like, I want to see what it's like to be on top of that mountain. And I got really into mountain climbing, and I work with, there's a whole community of climbers and there was something about the physical act of climbing each mountain that built my confidence. And, you know, by the time I climbed quite a few mountains, I was ready to go back to school and become an A student. But uh, that, that climbing was a critical part. And in today's show, you'll hear from Dr. Jim Knight, a research associate at the University of Kansas Center for Research and Learning. Hope you enjoy the discussion. Jim Knight first entered university in the 1970s, he described himself as being an uncommitted learner and unsure what it was he really wanted to do. This led to him leaving university to head out to Western Canada in pursuit of something greater than himself. And it was during this time away from university that he truly learned to look at the world and his life through a different lens. The breathtakingly beautiful mountains of Jasper, British Columbia, lured Jim in and sparked a passion for mountain climbing. And it was through this pursuit that he was able to understand the power of goal setting and push himself to take on new challenges in order to grow and learn and ultimately develop a greater sense of self-efficacy in his life. Little did he know it at the time, but this experience would be the main motivation for returning to university with a newfound sense of purpose and a strong commitment to be the best student that he could be. During his time at the University of Ottawa, Jim earned his bachelor's and master's in English language and literature before packing his bags and heading west again. But this time, not to take a break from studying, but instead to pursue a PhD in education at the University of Kansas. In the years since, Jim has traveled the world to present his work, written several influential books about effective teaching and instructional coaching, and currently is the research associate at the University of Kansas Center for Research and Learning, as well the president of the Instructional Coaching Group. However, these accomplishments are not what define Jim the most. Instead, he prides himself in being a lifelong learner who is always willing to take a deep look at himself in order to grow and learn and show up in the world in the best way possible as a husband, father, a colleague, and someone who is deeply committed to making a genuine difference in the lives of others. Let's jump right into this conversation with Jim talking about early days and the path that led him to finding his purpose and direction in life. 
Well, I grew up in Ontario, Canada. I grew up on a farm. Dad was a farmer. And uh, my parents really, um, really believed in education. Neither one of them were high school graduates for economic reasons and other things. But they believed in education. They really hammered home to me how important it was to get a degree. And, uh, and I went to school in the early 70s. And so there are a lot of other things you could do back then. You know, this is like end of the 60s, early 70s, and there was great music being played. And I was a terrible high school student. And I got by. I mean, I was, I was alive and, and enjoyed reading and writing. But um, I didn't really like uh, school particularly. And uh, especially had issues with uh, power trippers in school. I guess we'd probably call them verbally abusive now. And uh, so I, uh, I remember it was uh, the day before university was going to start, and I still didn't know if I was going to go to school or not at university after I graduated high school. Like I had, I had put the paperwork in, and I was accepted, and I had registered for my classes, but I'm still like, I don't know if I'm going to go. We went to a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert in Varsity Stadium, which you and I just talked about. And I was at the concert, and I'm like, gee, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to go to university or not. And I went uh, the next day, and uh, I was a terrible student. Uh, after after two years, um, I had a D minus average, and they they graciously invited me not to come back a third year. So I moved out to the Rockies in in Canada, which I'd always loved from about when I was sixteen, and uh, spent some time out there, and uh, decided I was uh, going to get serious and go back to school. And um, came back and did really well. And uh, did my bachelor's and master's at the University of Ottawa. And then I transferred to the University of Toronto. And uh, I was uh, lucky, lucky enough to get some scholarships and had a good GPA. And um, uh, applied for and I got a SHRC grant, Social Sciences and uh, Human Humanity Research Council grant, which is a pretty hard thing to get. I think they only at that time gave out about 50 across the nation. And so I'd gone from a D minus to a pretty good uh, standing and went to the University of Kansas to do my doctorate in education. Now, at at Toronto, I work with Michael Fullan, and uh, I took a course with Michael Fullan and Barry Bennett, and uh, both people I ridiculously admire. And um, and then Michael was gracious enough to take time and give me an independent study because I really wanted to go deeper into understanding change. And at that time he was writing a book called change forces. And, uh, I read everything he'd written up until he wrote change forces. And then he had me read other people like Margaret Wheatley and, um, Thomas Sergiovanni. And probably most influential was uh, Peter Senge's fifth discipline, which had just come out at that time. And, uh, so when I went to University of Kansas to do my doctorate, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to go to Kansas because I'd use their work with uh, young adults with learning disabilities at a university, at a community college. And I had real success with these uh, strategies. I could see that this research-based model really worked. And um, it was kind of transformative to see research applied and have it work with students who historically had felt they didn't have a chance to succeed. So um, at Kansas, uh, I went there because they're the ones who developed the materials. And at Kansas, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And we're, as a graduate student there, I was a part of a research study. And the study was about taking inclusive teaching practices and integrating into technology classrooms 
so that uh, because so many technology classrooms had kids with uh, learning disabilities. So we said, let's make those classes more inclusive and let's see if it makes a difference. And we're sitting around a table and uh, someone said, and I, know, I never remember who it was, but someone said, you know, if we're going to work with these uh, teachers and have them learn these practices, we're going to have to go in the room and show them what it looks like. And we're going to have to meet with them and discuss the practices. And we're going to have to co-plan and, and then provide support and feedback. Because if we just do a workshop, they're not going to do it. And one of us said, well, why don't we do that all the time? Why is it we keep doing workshops? If we know it's not going to work, why do we keep? And so that day, the idea of instructional coaching was kind of launched. And initially, uh, in my mind, and initially I started calling people learning consultants. So about 1998, I published a little article about a learning consultant. This is all on our website, instructionalcoaching.com. There's a research section. You can find all this stuff if you're having trouble sleeping or something. But at any rate, um, so we started with learning consultants, but I didn't like the consultant term. It seemed too uh, hierarchical. So we moved to um, uh, instructional collaborator and then started to do presentations about what we were doing. And then finally... Um, people kept telling us, well, you're actually coaches. And so we switched to the term instructional coach. It wasn't really our, our uh, preferred term, but it was the one that made the most sense. And um, so we started to talk about what we did as instructional coaching. I never forget the first time I was at Learning Forward back about, must have been 1998 or something. Oh, probably later than that, 2000. And uh, I heard two people talking and one said, oh, I'm an instructional coach. And I'm like, hey, that's my word. <laughs> it was kind of cool to hear somebody else use the term. Now it's just ubiquitous. Yeah. And other people have been using it, I suppose. There's an article from the 90s about instructional coaching, but we, we sort of coined the phrase. And so that's how it all came to be. We right. uh, went to Kansas because I'd seen the results. I'd seen what research could do. And then I got really interested in, in that. And then in particular, Fullen's work really got me thinking about the nature of what it means, the kind of relationships you have with teachers and what I call the partnership approach. And so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a long history. Well, you know, what really is interesting to me, and this is what I really love to better understand about the guests that I have on the show, because they all have very unique journeys in how they have come to understand themselves and the world. And what I want to backtrack on and rewind to is your first year of university, your first couple of years where you said you were a struggling student. So obviously, you are the type of learner that if you are passionate about learning, you dive deeply in and you're committed. So it sounds like at that time, you just didn't feel what your calling was. So it took that time away, going to the Rockies to kind of center, your, center yourself and to... to um, to then go back with, with a different focus. So that makes me want to go to your two or three strengths, early strengths that you possessed, because obviously you, you took that chance to go to, uh, to stop going to school, to go to the Rockies, to figure things out, and then come back a different person and then be completely engaged in learning. So how would you describe early strengths, two or three strengths that, best describe you as a young person and how these strengths may have helped to navigate you on your um, path in life? First off, I don't think I was a struggling student. What I was was a non-committed student. Right. You know, the day before the Psych 101 class, I remember I was sitting in this bar 
And it was the first time I'd open up the textbook for the class and the exam was the next day. And I was like, eh, you know, maybe I should look at this textbook before I do the exam. So I wasn't really struggling in the sense of I was having a hard time. It's just that I wasn't undisciplined would be another good word for yeah. it. It never really developed habits back then in high school, it kind of, I could just sort of show up and get through. And so I never really developed any kind of good habits as a, as a student. Um, and probably a thing I should say, and then I'll talk about the strengths, uh, is that a critical thing in my life, fundamental change, is when I moved to Jasper. I lived in Banff, Alberta for a while, then I moved to Jasper, Alberta. And uh, I got really, when you live, when you're a young person, probably anybody, but when you're a young person in particular living in uh, the mountains, it's kind of like they call to you. Like, I want to see what it's like to be on top of that mountain. And I got really into mountain climbing, and I worked with there's a whole community of climbers and uh, there was something about the physical act of climbing each mountain that built my confidence i probably had low self-efficacy when i first went to university and something about i really think this is worth exploring but i'm not going to be the one to do it but there was something about the physical act of uh, accomplishing each climb and it strengthened me. It gave me a better sense of efficacy. Not that I felt like I was all that great or anything, but there's something like I could, I could accomplish things. And, you know, by the time I climbed quite a few mountains, I was ready to go back to school and become an A student. But uh, that, that climbing was a critical part. In terms of strengths, when I, I've done the strength finder and my wife and I, Jenny and I, my partner, we, um, we get the same thing. Uh, learning would be the, the biggest strength. I'm a learner and I'm kind of, um, re re uh, relentlessly in pursuit of new ideas. It's, ex it, it, there's, um, it's almost like playing Pac-Man, you know, I just wanted to, 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 to grab more ideas and, and, but at the same time, synthesize them. So, there's sort of two things, maybe three things um, that I, uh, uh, I really like to learn, but then I want to be able to explain it. And to explain it, it has to get clear in my head. And so if I read a book, I might, I might actually hold on to like one-tenth of the book, but there'll be some idea that I can hold on to, and, and then I can synthesize it. And I think... Um, my goal, and I think I, this is probably something I'm fairly good at, is being able to be really clear at what it looks like. You know, I can say it in ways that other people can't. Probably because it, I have to get it clear in my head first, and that's a lot of work to get it there. And then um, the other thing I would say is, as a learner, I have always had, I've always found it helpful to have what the Buddhists would call, I think it's the Buddhists would call, a beginner's mindset. And so uh, when I was learning how to climb, I had these people around me who were mentors and experts and who knew how to climb, and they climbed many mountains. They had roots named after them and stuff. And uh, it would have been silly for me to tell them what I wanted to do. I was just like, you just teach me, and I'll do it. And I was really open. And they, what they told me is um, the fact that I didn't show up with these preconceived notions that I was willing to be. And I think through my life... Uh, it's not really humility. It's really just uh, an openness and a desire to, to learn from that beginner's mindset. You know, I suppose I'm not trying to impose my views, and there are times I do, but I think that. So I'd say 
uh, a desire to learn and, uh, and then a beginner's mindset that opens up the opportunity to learning would be big things in my life. And then um, I don't want to waste my days. And so I'm driven to, to do meaningful things. You know, I'm not worried about credit or who did this or who did that, but I want my time to be spent making the world a better place. It sounds like a cliche, but it's, I've only got so many days and this day should be making the world a little bit better. And sometimes that's about changing myself. Sometimes that's about what I put out into the world. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely living with intentionality and John Kabat-Zinn, the mindfulness guru and mindfulness uh, expert often talks about the importance of bringing a beginner's mindset to everything that we do in order to grow and learn every day and to live a more fulfilled life based on having goals and pursuing an understanding of, of uh, ourselves, a better understanding of ourselves and uh, what we can accomplish in the world. And um, if we were to take a dive into the weeds now of instructional coaching, just on a very broad level, um, how would you define instructional coaching? And let's just start there. How would you define it first? Because then I have a follow-up question. Sure. Maybe I could attach, uh, sort of look at that in two different ways. So one way is I'd say that instructional coaching is a partnership. So it's a conversation between equals and it's a partnership. And what the coach does is they help uh, teachers um, identify a goal. First off, get a clear picture of reality. And so for us, the most powerful way to do that is through video, but there are other ways you can interview students. You can gather data in the classroom. The trouble with gathered, gathering data in the classroom is um, most people don't have a clear picture of reality, so it's easier for them to see what's happening if they can, dis- if they can interpret it for themselves through video. But some people don't want to look at video, so you can gather data. You could look at student work, but the problem with looking at student work without something else is you miss an awful lot because if there's, for example, enormous amounts of wasted time, it's not going to show up in the student work. So video plus student work would be kind of a powerful thing. Interviews are great. You get a clear picture of reality. Then you set a goal that the teacher wants to hit that's going to make a big difference in kids' lives. So we call that a peer's goal. Powerful, easy, emotionally compelling, reachable, which means you can measure it and uh, you have a strategy identified and um, student-focused. So it's a student change you want. And then uh, you identify a strategy to hit the goal. And so the strategy, uh, you know, you want to increase engagement and the strategy might be about giving kids voice in classroom or setting up cooperative learning activities or more authentic learning experiences. Then uh, that's the first part we call identify. So instructional coaches partner with teachers to identify a clear picture of reality, to identify a goal, to identify a strategy. Then they help teachers learn uh, that new strategy. And so instructional coaches, this would be a difference with the cognitive coaching, they are curators of knowledge. So they know about powerful teaching practices, like other professional developers might help you learn about something. But they help you learn it in the context of real-life application. So they don't show up and say, let me do a workshop on questioning. And they might do that for awareness, but really when they help people learn questioning is in the midst of integrating it into your class because you have a goal that matters to you. And learning that sticks is learning that's embedded in real life activity. And so they describe the strategy precisely. 
and they uh, help teachers see what it'll look like sometimes by watching a video or see another teacher or co-teach, or sometimes they'll teach the strategy in the teacher's classroom. But however the teacher wants to do it, they get the teacher ready to implement. And then they make adaptations uh, to the strategy until the goal gets hit. Sometimes they get rid of the strategy. Sometimes they modify how the strategy is working. Sometimes they change the goal. Sometimes they change the measure towards the goal. So they integrate that process of identifying a clear picture of reality, identifying a goal, identifying a strategy, then describing and modeling the strategy in some way so the person's ready to implement, and then making adaptations until it gets hit. That's what we call the impact cycle, and that stands at the heart of coaching. But it is also a partnership. It's never, I'm up here and you're down there. It's really two teachers talking together about what it might look like, but it just happens that that teacher has more expertise in a particular area. Right. And one of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in, in exploring more, and I've heard you talk about this before, is the different kind of capacities uh, within coaching or I guess the different types of coaching. So if you could now just jump into um, the difference between directive coaching, facilitative coaching, and dialogical coaching. You know, so I think based on my understanding, me being a cognitive coach, I'm more of a facilitative coach even though there are aspects of my own role as a cognitive coach where I can jump in and be a consultant, uh, I can right. be a collaborator, I can be a coach. I, I can also be an evaluator, but we don't really look at the evaluating part. But right. for, the, for the listeners right now, can you give that very important distinction between directive, facilitative, and dialogical coaching? Sure. Um, so most people distinguish between directive and facilitative coaching in the writing. And when you hear people write about coaching, that's usually the main distinction. So a directive coach um, is the person who's um, going to observe your class, uh, give you a few grows and glows. Here's something you did well. Here's something you need to work on. Or a directive coach could have it as their job to make sure you do something the right way. We're going to do writer's workshop. I'm going to make sure you do it the right way. But the directive coach has more power in the relationship than the, than the, than the teacher. And the, um, the decision maker in that conversation is primarily the coach, or yeah, primarily the coach. And uh, the outcome they want is a change in what the teacher does. Uh, so a different kind of teaching practice. And it's either I've observed your class and here's what you need to work on and I'm going to help you learn that or whatever. The research on motivation, particularly DG and Ryan, mm -hmm. uh, would say that's going to encounter problems. Uh, a good book that would sort of be a contrast to that would be uh, Miller's book, Motivational Interviewing. Mm -hmm. That uh, if you don't have a partnership, you're going to encounter a lot of resistance. And when I have coaches ask me, I've been lucky enough to work with an awful lot of coaches around the world, but when I have coaches say to me, what do I do about resistant teachers? often the resistance comes more from the approach of the coach, taking a directive approach, not honoring the capacity. Essentially, I would say when you take the directive approach, you're, you're not treating teachers like professionals. You're saying, this is what you have to do. Now, facilitative coaching um, is in many ways the opposite of that. The facilitative coach positions the teacher as a peer. The teacher has power in the conversation. The teacher is the ultimate decision maker. What I'm doing when I'm facilitating coaching is um, I'm facilitating the thinking of the teacher and I'm helping them set goals. 
or I'm helping them make plans and become aware of where they are. Um, but the facilitative uh, coach does not share expertise, not when they're coaching. Uh, because if they were to share expertise, the theory would be I'm taking away power from you and I need you to come up with your own solution. And so a facilitative coach works from the assumption that this teacher already knows what to do and all I have to do is help them become more aware of it. And the outcome of facilitative coaching, as John Campbell, a good friend of mine, says, is uh, action, clarity, and energy. You know, after we've had this facilitative coaching conversation, I know what I want to do, I'm clear on it, and I'm energized by the fact that I work through the weeds and I know where I want to go. Now, um, dialogical coaching, as I describe it, comes from the same theoretical base as cognitive coaching or facilitative coaching. It's positioning the teacher as a partner. And probably the thing I've written that people know the best is a set of partnership principles that are uh, to say, I see this other teacher as the decision maker in the conversation. And everything I do as a dialogical coach positions the teacher as the decision maker in the conversation. But I don't withhold my ideas either. But I share them in a way that honors the capacity of the teacher to do the thinking. When you look at the definitions of dialogue, and that's something I've yeah, go I, ahead. Just, I just have a question about that because that's really important for me to better understand sure. right there. The teacher is positioned in a way where they have autonomy and they are the decision makers, but right. you don't withhold your ideas or your expertise and you are willing to share. So what does that look like in the relationship? Is it a, is it a break in the conversation? Is it a pause? Is it, a make, is it making a, a distinct pattern interrupt to say, I'd like to offer you my insight or do you wait until they ask or do you just find the right time to infuse your ideas into the conversation? Because that's, I think, really important for coaches to understand. Right. Well, um, it depends on where you are in that cycle I described. But in the identify stage, um, I should say too, I'll just say this little sort of tangential thing first, that um, when you're a coach, the way you make decisions is... uh, really important and you make different kinds of decisions you know as Kahneman said there's thinking fast and thinking slow Mm -hmm. thinking fast is oh my goodness that car is cutting out in front of me I need to hit the brakes thinking slow is uh am I going to sue that guy because he cut it in front of me and we had the accident you know um and when you're coaching you have to do a lot of thinking fast you have to make decisions in the moment and so you need, uh, I would say you need something like mantras to get you through it. Like one of my mantras would is the teacher makes the decision. And uh, uh, Michelle Harris, my colleague, she says her mantra is uh, the sweet purity of silence. Christian Van Neuerberger, Neuerberg, I always call him Neuerberger. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's like a really good friend of mine, and I keep calling him Neuerberger. Christian, world-renowned scholar in coaching, and I can't <laughs> say his name right. And he's one of my best friends. But Christian would say, his mantra is it's not about me. And so, uh, so I think in the moment you have to make decisions really quickly. And essentially you're saying, am I going to move from facilitative to dialogical? You probably, sometimes you never leave the facilitative because this teacher does know what they want to do. I don't add anything, any value to the conversation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a facilitative stance. But if the teacher is often what will happen is the teacher is saying, look, if I knew what to do, I would be doing it. And they need some expertise. Billions of dollars have been spent on the research on effective instruction. If we have someone who can help me learn those instructional practices to help me 
hit the goal, it's really helpful. If I don't know what I'm supposed to do and you just keep asking me, what do you think I should do? That's not, so, so then what I sometimes do is I make a decision to ask permission to move into that role. So if the teacher is trying to figure out what the strategy might be that she's going to use to hit the goal, and she says, you know, I don't really, I can't think of anything else. I might say, is it okay with you if I share a few things I'm thinking? And I say, let's just write them down on a list, and then we'll go through them, and we'll talk about which one you want to do. And then the way I propose it is I want to make it really clear, I don't think mine's any better than yours. I don't want there to be any sense in which you should choose mine. And I think you offer them with what I think is a realistic uh, approach is that you um, you re- recognize that classrooms are complex and there's no simple answer. And hey, we could try this, but look, you know your kids better than me. You know better than me what's going to work. What do you think about this idea? You know, it's, it's really, really that teacher has to know they're making the decision because if they're doing it for you, there won't be the same level of commitment. And then in the next part, as a dialogical coach, if I'm explaining a strategy, I, I probably would use a checklist. I said, look, I've got this checklist that describes how to do think, pair, share. Um, let's go through it and you tell me what you want to change. And it's kind of like in cognitive coaching, that third point, that third thing. Yeah. You look at it and you tell me what we want. I'll go through and explain what the research says, but those researchers don't know your class. They don't know your students and we can, we can change it. You can do whatever you want to do. It's your classroom. And the reality is they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. So let's just honor their capacity to make decisions. And if the teacher says something that's going to, I'm, I'm thinking is not going to work, I'll say, do you mind if I share something I'm thinking about this? I wonder if we don't put behavior under control in some way before we do cooperative learning, if that'll actually make things worse. What do you think? But it's not about, I'm not, I have to let go of the need to be right and do what's right. And to do what's right, I have to position the teacher as the decision maker. Because the truth is, the teacher is the decision maker. They are going to do what they're going to do. And people will get, especially researchers, will be like, well, that, what if there's uh, lethal mutations that, that they make? I'm like, well, we have a goal. We've set a goal. Whatever they try to do, if it doesn't work for the goal, we'll see. And then we'll change it. So the standard for excellence is not my opinion. The standard for excellence is the goal we've set external to the both of us. And so in the whole process, there's never I'm up here and you're down there. It's like, I got this information. Let me share it with you, see what you want to do. And that's how the dialogical works. But I would say we usually start facilitative and often don't go to dialogical. But it is really helpful to have a body of literature that you understand about what effective instruction looks like to help people hit their goals when they hit the wall. You know, I know, and a lot of people uh, don't necessarily um, take that approach. They want to stay in the facilitative realm. So for me, the critical question is, do the teachers really know all they need to know? Or is it helpful for them to learn new, new practices? And if you think, I do think people need to learn some new practices, in some cases, to learn their practice, and that's when you shift to instructional coaching as opposed to, say, uh, growth coaching by John Campbell. Right. Christian Van Neuerberg. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had uh, Richard Ryan on my podcast about two months ago, and we had a great conversation. He's such a lovely person and uh, so humble and down to earth. And uh, we, I really enjoyed the discussion with him. But everything I just heard you describe completely aligns with self-determination theory. A 
autonomy right. and, and competence and the, these big ideas and these fundamental and relationships, these fundamental needs that have to be met in order to create, plant the seeds for, for people to be intrinsically motivated to pursue their own growth and learning. And then in the, you know, as you described everything you just said, your partnership principles, equality, choice, voice, dialogue, we're into reflection, uh, praxis, reciprocity. I heard the first four really come alive in everything you just described. So can you now just finish off, because I think you've touched upon equality, choice, voice, and dialogue. What about reflection, praxis, and reciprocity uh, as the fifth, sixth, and seventh partnership principle? Can you just uh, shed some insight on that for us? Right. Well, practice is one that maybe I just don't describe it very clearly, but people have some difficulty wrapping their uh, mind about what it means. It might be the word praxis. Um, and the word has broader applications than I give to it in, in uh, understanding social change, for example. But for me, um, what I mean by praxis is our learning it, to learn something new. It needs to be integrated into our lives. We just, we just don't read the book or watch the webinar or go to the workshop. And so praxis is about messing around with knowledge and saying, how can I use this knowledge in a new way to, to in my life? It's learning in action. This is why goals are really important. We didn't know this 15 years ago, but once you set a goal, now you have something you're trying to strive for. And then now that we know that we're trying to strive for something, then, um, well, how can I use that strategy to help me get the goal? And, um, and I think we need to keep getting better at that. But praxis is, how do I integrate this learning into my real life? It's, it's not, we're not at the workshop on questioning. It's like I have these five students who haven't spoken all class, and right now only four kids are, are, are answering, and they're giving me really short, cursory answers. The questioning's not working. And I really want a high level of meaningful responses from my students. We're going to measure that. So how do we hit, hit that? And the coach says, well, there's quite a bit of literature on effective questioning. Here are some things we could try. What do you think? And they, they work it out, and the teacher tries to figure it out. When I was trying to uh, improve as a runner, everything I learned, I would try it out when I was running. And so I would go out and, um, okay, I'm going to try this chi running. And I would try to send some things I kept and some things I cut, but I played around with it in my head. That's practice. Reflection, I just think of as looking back or looking ahead or looking at. Those are the three terms I use. And it's really just uh, analyzing what's happening, thinking about it. And reflection is integrated into praxis. Reflection is also integrated into dialogue. But reflection, for me, the way I've described it is sometimes we look back and say, how did it go? Sometimes in the moment we have to make decisions. So I realized this approach in this workshop isn't working and I try a different approach or this way of teaching isn't working. And sometimes, and I got this idea from Joel and Killian, but sometimes reflection is looking ahead saying, um, I got this, what can we do differently tomorrow? And so it's, I guess you could call that preflection or something, but it's looking back, looking at, looking ahead. And the reciprocity is a simple idea. It's that I go in as a learner, not as a judger. You know, the old saying is when one teaches to learn. So I go in and expecting to be, I see coaching as a symbiotic relationship that we both, in which we both benefit. That helps to not clear things up, but to give more insight into the partnership principles. 
And one of the questions I want to ask you, I think you've written, if I'm not mistaken, nine books. Uh, you got me. I don't know. Okay. Uh, that sounds good. Let's go with that. Okay. So what's that your, sounds like more than I've done. Well, I guess we have reflection guides and other things. So yeah. Was your first book uh, strategic managers in 1997? No, that's not me. Oh, it's not. What was your first book then? Um, well, the first book I co-authored with Randy Sprick and Wendy Renke. And it's yeah. subsequently the second edition had two additional authors, Trisha Skiles and Lynn Barnes Schuster. Okay. And that was called Coaching Classroom Management. Okay. And that came out in about 2005. And then the next book after that was Instructional Coaching. Okay. I think Amazon says that I wrote that strategic planning yeah, book, I but I, don't, I have no idea what it is. Okay, that's what came up in, in the research that I had done for this podcast. But yeah. regardless, um, the, I'm just trying to get a time frame here from your first book right. to your uh, most current book. So 2005 was your first book. And then um, in the Instructional Playbook in 2019... Uh, right. It's the okay. last book. Yeah. Good. So now we've got a journey of 14 years there of writing. Right. So what I want to ask you, and this goes before your first book, actually, but based on you've said it yourself, you, you've been very open to new experiences in your life. And, and really, you describe yourself as a lifelong learner and, and prioritizing your own professional growth and development obviously is very important to you. So the question I have for you is, what did you used to think instructional coaching was back then when you first started to get into the, into that, um, into the field? And then what do you think it is now based on your learning and growth? Okay. Um, this is hopefully not too long of an answer, but I see instructional coaching as involving seven, what I call success factors. And so since this is education, we, we probably need to get around to a Venn diagram. So I want you to imagine a Venn diagram. Okay. And one, one circle in the Venn diagram is who I am. And who I am involves my principles, my communication skills, my approach to personal action and leadership, leading yourself and leading others. So partnership, communication, leadership. That's who I am. And then um, what I do is the impact cycle. And the impact cycle involves the cycle that we've described. It involves gathering data. It involves expertise around instruction. And so instructional coaches, they know a lot, but they're not know-it-alls. They have expertise, but they don't, they don't act like experts. And so that strategic knowledge is really about how they help teachers gather data on uh, in classroom data, not achievement data. Well, it might be achievement data, but not standardized data you can add, you can measure every week. And also helping the, helping the teachers know practices. That means they probably need an instructional playbook. They know they they know a set of core strategies that they use that they and they know those things really really deeply. So that's the second circle. What I do cycle the impact cycle the data, the knowledge. And then there's a bigger circle around the whole thing, and that's where I work. And so instructional coaches have to be in a, an environment where they can succeed, which means there's an alignment between the principal and the coach in terms of their philosophy about how coaching works and their understanding of what it is. And the coaches have time to do the work they do. And it's not a directive evaluative thing. And um, and there's an expectation, there's a culture of learning in the school. It's what as Susan Rosenholz will call a moving school, not a stuck school. And so we've learned a lot about all of those things. The partnership principles haven't 
really changed that much, but more writing has come along to kind of validate what they do. And, uh, you know, books like uh, Adam Grant's Give and Take, you know, and then uh, we've got clearer on how to listen and question. And I've really deepened my understanding of leadership. The leadership has really changed. I've just got, first off, there's a lot more writing about leadership, but I recognize personal self-motivation is the critical first part of leadership. Brene Brown says something to the effect of who we are is how we lead. Like, we have to think carefully about who we are as part of leading. And the second part is where a lot of changes happen. For example, we, we never used to set goals when we started. We saw coaching in the early days as helping people learn how to use teaching strategies. Now we see it as helping people use strategies in the pursuit of student-focused goals. We use video. I have a book about video, which was, I think, the first one on the topic. And um, we see video as... Um, it's like rocket fuel for learning. When people start to look at themselves on video and they see what they're doing and they analyze their practice, they get better. Um, the way in which we share practices, model them, is gone from one thing where we go in the classroom and show the teacher to six different things. Where, and the kind of goals we set has evolved. We started with no goals, then we went to peers' goals, then we went to smart goals. In the impact cycle, there's a whole description of the process we use, but it's kind of like design research. We we identify something we want to work on, we try it out, we have a goal, we iterate, make modifications, we go back to the cycle. And then our work over time has helped us understand the importance of the system. It's everything like how do you hire goal coaches and all kinds of things goes into that. So there's an awful lot that we've learned. And I think we should be learning. It should be getting better every year. What we do should be different. It's frustrating for everybody who works with me because it's like, okay, this is where it was last year. We're going to do it differently this year. Mm. Uh, but I, also, I think it's exciting. But I think you think of Apple in 1984 when Steve Jobs showed the Mac Classic. It had four megabytes of memory. You know, now the new iPhone, I think it has a terabyte of memory. You know, not a megabyte, a gigabyte, a terabyte. Yeah. Um, and then what the phone can do now versus what that computer could do, it's ridiculous, you know. And our mechanisms and tools and processes for uh, helping teachers you know, as Christian, Kristen Anderson says, unleash their brilliance. Those things should be improving just the way technology improves. We need to keep getting better and better. And I think we're, I'd say too, uh, what we do is a much, much simpler and much more powerful. We used to have this eight stage linear process and in instructional coaching. Now it's a three part cycle and it's pretty accessible to people initially, at least. Yeah. So a lot has changed. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, I want to move to better conversations now. I think you wrote that in 2015, right? Right. Yeah. It came out in 2015. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so I heard you speak about what the impetus was behind um, better conversations. So I kind of have a two-part question here. And I want to give sure. you I want to give you a quote, like in your own words, because that will frame up the, the first question that I have for you. And then we'll go into the second question based on uh, what your thoughts are with the first question. So in your own words, you said, I wrote better conversations because I think conversations are vital to our happiness and our living of a fulfilling life. And we have the opportunity to learn through conversations. Most of our joy and pain probably involves a conversation. So based on just that kind of initial um, thing that you shared, ideas that you shared behind why you wrote the book and I, the question I have for you is, 
how did you learn about the importance of conversations and the power that lies in having authenticity in conversations? Was that something that you learned because it was modeled to you at an early age by important caregivers or authority figures in your life? Or did you develop an understanding of the importance of conversations because it was something that was lacking in your early days in life? So I just want to make that connection to how you developed an understanding of the importance of conversations. Uh, I think I, uh, uh, well, it's obvious it was important for coaching because coaches, they communicate. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. That was a funny book in the sense that it kind of wrote itself. And initially I was just going to work on a workshop and a workbook on communication and then I just stuff kept happening and it kept kind of growing and then it became a book and now it's maybe the most popular book I wrote. And um, I don't think I'm really good at communication. You know, I think I can teach and I can coach where the, where the playing field is really clear. But I think uh, when things get sticky, I have a lot of need for growth I think I've grown a lot but I'm still not as good as I'd like to be um, as a communicator and um, uh, so I think maybe there's uh, Elena Aguilar I interviewed her a while back and she said that you know her books and maybe I'm not going to say this exactly the way she said it but they respond to something in her she writes them because she has to write them because there's something going on inside of her and I think that's probably a part of it for me that um you know, I think uh, I'm pretty vivid, vividly aware of conversations I've had that don't succeed. And I also know the power of successful ones. Just yesterday, I talked to one of my co-authors on a book we're doing on evaluating coaches, Sharon Thomas. And it's kind of a potentially uh, challenging conversation because we we're going to talk about how we're going to edit the book and um, how we're going to work together around, you know, what's this sentence look like? What's, what's the, how does she want me to give her my take and how do we want to work it out? And she started out the conversation by saying, I can imagine this would be a little challenging for you because you've written so many books and you have a way of doing things. And I can see how this would cause, and like she had started the whole conversation with describing where I was kind of in Susan Scott way. And it just set the conversation off to be a really beautiful conversation because she did such a skillful thing. So, so I think I am a better communicator than I was when I wrote better conversations, the act of writing it and then sharing that knowledge has been helpful to reinforce it. And I think there's huge room for growth. I don't know. I'll just say one more thing. When I was writing the book, I had this kind of crisis of faith because I was kind of like, who the heck am I to write a book about communication? I'm hardly a good communicator. I went to see this singer-songwriter, Andy Gullihorn, in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, he was playing with a bunch of other people, but he sang this song called I Will. And I Will is about how to be a good friend. And he says, if you need me to cry with you, I will. He said, if you need me to die with you, he said, whatever, whatever you need me to do, I will. And uh, it's kind of like, I love you as a friend and I'll do whatever you need me to do. And he said, I wrote this song. He said, not because this is who I am. He said, I wrote this song because this is the person I want to be. And when I heard him say that, I went, oh, I can write this book because Better Conversations is not about who I am. It's about who I want to be. 
I got out of the car. I couldn't wait to tell Jenny because she'd had to listen to me deal with this crisis of faith. And she looked at me and she said, well, maybe then you're the perfect person who should write this book because aren't we all not who we are? And don't we all want to be better as communicators? She said, maybe you're exactly the right person because you're struggling. So that's, that's a big messy way of saying where it came from. I think that was a beautiful way to say that because my next question was about the second question I had to that was to describe what you learned about yourself as a presenter and a mentor and a leader in education through the process of writing a book. So I think you just answered that, that you, you learned about, through the process, you learned about becoming a better communicator. Um, kind of cut out a bit there when we're talking, but I, I would say something I've been thinking about recently is um, reality forces you to change. You know, for example, if you want to be a leader, you can't just say, I'm not really an organized kind of person. You know, I'm going to drop the ball. I'm not going to follow up. Because that's kind of the way I am. I'm not really the world's most organized person. But I, I'm trying really hard to learn how to become a, a leader who, with our little organization who is reliable and gets things done on time and who does those things. I have to change. I might not want to, but the situation demands that. And if you're a, a teacher or... Um, a coach, you know, you can't say, I just don't like kids. I mean, I'm not, kids aren't my thing. Well, either quit or learn to like kids. You know, I'm not really a very positive kind of person. I don't really believe in encouraging people and supporting them. I don't believe in highlighting people's strengths. No, you need to learn how to do that. I, I get that's where you are now. But if you want this, if you really want to live with efficacy, if you really want to do the right work, you, you have to change. And it's not about just staying where you are. I have a real issue with the word authenticity. Because sometimes I think the word authenticity says, I'm just not going to try anymore. My authentic, if my authentic self is, is a jerk, is that good enough? No. I mean, I, I, need, to, I need to work at getting better. And so uh, to, me, to me, to be authentic is to be the person you think you are. Understand your beliefs and then live according to their beliefs. If you say people should really listen to other people, they should allow other people to have a voice, and then you talk all over them every day, you're not really being authentic. Authentic is to be the person you say. That's why principles are important. They give you a standard for measuring how well you're doing. So to me, an authentic person is a person who lives out their principles and their actions. And it's not just somebody who just says whatever they think, and if they feel ticked off, they say it. So, so yeah, I would say that's a, that's a key part, that you... Your, your, your situation, a marriage, being a parent, teaching, leading, coaching, those situations compel us to change if we want to make them work. You know, yeah. we're in the situation that we've, you know, we have a child. That means there's some things we have to do. At the same time, we can't kill ourselves over it either. You know, it's, uh, Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion is really important. Nobody's harder on themselves than ourselves. So we have to have this kind of, compassion towards ourselves as we muddle our way towards being the person we want to be. I guess that's how I put it. Uh, that's great. And I, I was listening to a, a podcast recently and, and what you just uh, talked about really resonated with me because I've been taking notes over the past three days. It's a 90 minute podcast. Do you know, Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Yeah. So he had Dr. Jim Lore on who 
Dr. Jim Lohr is a performance mm-hmm. psychologist. Yeah, right. So he's coached yep. 17 world number ones. He's amazing, right? So Jim right. was was talking about exactly what you just talked about. And um, it's such a such a deep, deep way to look at learning and growth. And one of the things I want to ask you about as we move towards the end of the show is the role of educational leaders. And what role do you believe educational leaders have in modeling vulnerability in order to ensure that their staff can have the trust to be uh, authentic themselves and to share their real voice? And I guess that connects to public and private voice. So if Mm -hmm. you can share a little bit about the difference between public and private voice and then go into the role of educational leaders in modeling vulnerability. Well, I think something comes before vulnerability, and that is uh, clarity around your principles and your purpose. And if you're really clear on what your purpose is, then it's easier to be vulnerable because it's not about me. It's about making a difference in the quality of children's lives through uh, achievement and well-being. And if I really hold true to that purpose that's bigger than me, then it's a little easier to be vulnerable, you know? Then you can say, uh, look, I know I haven't done very well on this. And, I mean, if, if you really, really want the purpose of what's best for kids and you keep that right in front of you, then your actions are going to reflect that. And, and the, the, the failure to be vulnerable, I don't, I'm not an expert on, on all this stuff, but, um, but the failure to be vulnerable usually comes out of fear. Well, if my goal is to do what's best, whatever the goal might be, but if my goal is uh, <laughs> to uh, stay in power no matter what the cost and to look good no matter what and, and have everything filtered through my ego, well, then it's going to be hard to be vulnerable. Then it's going to be hard for me to admit my mistakes because all I care about is myself. But if I care about something bigger than myself, then myself isn't that important. I think... Um, uh, the Ego is an Enemy is a great book about that that talks about the power of ego and how it gets in the way and something bigger. So to me, vulnerability, grow, it, it, it is, uh, it's a natural outcome of purpose. If I really, really care deeply, then I'm not going to get hung up on worrying about what you, you know, I, I'll do it. I think if vulnerability is done manipulatively, I'm about to cry so that you'll buy into this. It's people see through it pretty quickly. You know, it has to be a genuine, it's driven by a genuine desire for what's bigger. And, um, and I think to be a learner, you have to be vulnerable. I, I, there's parts of it I don't fully get. So for example, a teacher who is really vulnerable in front of his students, but who lacks confidence in the classroom, doesn't have confidence in the way they work with kids, runs the risk of being walked all over by the students. I think for vulnerability to really, um, vulnerability without uh, confidence is a bit of a problem. And so you need, not that you need to be overly confident, but you have to have a real sense. That's where purpose comes in. Purpose gives you the confidence because you know what you're doing is bigger than you. And then when you've got that confidence and vulnerability, then you're an attractive human being to people. But I think if you're, not that you do it for those reasons, but 
we're more inclined to follow somebody who seems to have their act. But if they're falling apart all the time and always vulnerable, it's hard to follow that person. You know, it's hard to want to be a, to, to see them as a leader. Yeah. And it's your following is the right word, but yeah, that's, that's what maybe, res- maybe we have less respect for somebody who completely lacks purpose. Yeah. That's what Jim Lord talked about in the episode with Tim Ferriss was this idea of uh, the hidden scorecard. He talked about everybody has a hidden scorecard and the most, uh, I guess, in order to have sustained success over time, that the best in the world at their craft are the ones who balance extrinsic rewards and awards and accomplishments with the hidden scorecard of how have I shown up in the world and being there for others. And that is rooted in our, our values. So what you're describing is having our values as our center point of reference. So you have that as an anchor point in all of the decisions that you make. Right. And that's, that's really what you're describing. So can you talk about that, um, that public voice and private voice? Um, there isn't a big difference for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's a good or a bad thing. But I kind of, this is just who I am. I think, um, I think when you lead, or maybe even when you work in a workplace environment, well, when you have a differential in power, relationships aren't quite the same. Once a, once a teacher becomes a principal, they say the teachers treat them differently. And uh, friendship between people in an organization who have different kinds of power, it's a little different. And so you, you need to be able or it's possible you're going to find that your friends aren't as friendly as you want when they don't get what they want. So the kind of friendship you have between two teachers is not the same as the friendship between a principal. And that's not to say friendship between a principal and teacher isn't, isn't possible, but it's also, it's also changed by the difference in power in the relationship. And, um, and when you lead, you have to be okay with the fact that these people might turn against me if they don't get what they want. And, And because you're driven by your principles, I don't know if I'm saying this very clearly, but I suppose it happens collaboratively too in organizations, but particularly um, people will turn cold towards the principal when they become a principal and it's heartbreaking. And you have to know that when you, when you choose to take on a role because you want to have a bigger impact on kids' lives because you want to touch every kid who comes to your school, not just your classroom, that's your motivation usually, that some of your friends won't be so friendly anymore. So I don't know if that's public voice or private voice, but what I would say is that intentionality, that means you have to be prepared for that and you have to, uh, and you have to go into the situation, not losing sight of the real reason I'm here doing this is not so I can feel the joys of having friends who think I'm a great person, but the real reason I'm here is to create an environment where people can succeed, where teachers flourish and consequently kids flourish. So, that's a that's a tough lesson to learn yeah. that that people you thought were your friends maybe still are your friends but it's different you know once you get power it's often different and and holding true to your values again as an anchor point is probably right. very important right. uh, part of that process you know um, right 
So, um, Jim, as we segue to a close, I, I really want to thank you for sharing. You know, we had a, a discussion about instructional coaching, but also you as a person. And, and I really see the overlap between you as a person and, and as a professional. And that's what you just kind of described is, you know, uh, rooted in your beliefs and, and how you want to keep showing up in the world to continue to make the impact that you're making. And um, just before we close, I just want to know where people can find you on social media. And then I have one closing question. So, yeah, just share your social media links and uh, where people can find you. Sure. Twitter is Jim Knight 99 and uh, Instagram is Jim Knight 99. And our website is instructionalcoaching.com. But if you type in instructional coach, it'll probably take you there. So we have various ways. You can email, probably the easiest way is to email hello at instructionalcoaching.com and uh, contact us there. Okay, great. I'm gonna... The 99, do you know why the name the 99? Gretzky. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Gretzky, whose rookie card just went for a million dollars in auction. That's yeah. unbelievable. I'll tell you, can I tell you a story about Gretzky? Please. please. So 2000, you can edit this out if you want. No way, I'm leaving uh, 2005 it. was the World Junior Championships in hockey, and uh, we live in Lawrence, Kansas, straight south of Winnipeg, if you can imagine that map of Canada. Yeah. And uh, the championships, it was the year of the strike, and so all the NHL players were available. And it was uh, Sidney Crosby versus Alex Ovechkin in the championship game, the gold medal game. And so for Christmas, I got my kids tickets, three of us. And uh, it wasn't that hard to get because it's uh, hockey's not that big a deal in Canada. It was like the Super Bowl, but in, in the United States, it wasn't that big a deal. So we drove up we stayed in this, uh, really, it was expensive, but it was the least expensive hotel we could find in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And, uh, we woke up the next day and, um, we went out for breakfast and the breakfast was in, the, it was like a, like a motel too. That's what I think. Like, <laughs> And uh, the breakfast was, they had a pool table. They shoved that up against the wall. They had uh, like Minimade orange juice, donuts or bagels or something. And they had a silver craft. Or, that was your breakfast. So we're sitting, sitting at like a card table in the pool hall part of the hotel, right beside the pool. And who's come through the door? Wayne Gretzky. He sits wow. down uh, like 20 feet from where we're sitting to have breakfast with somebody. I'm sure he chose this place because he figured nobody's going to find me here. And my kids being teenagers came in late, you know, they were sleeping up and I said to Jeff, look who's over there. And Jeff, my oldest son, he's a huge hockey fan. He goes, wow, that's the head of hockey Canada. <laughs> he said, no, but look who the head of hockey Canada is talking to. And when he saw Gretzky, Oh, I know what they had for food. It was, it was Eggo waffles. It, his, his, he held his Eggo like frozen in space. Like he could not move. He was paralyzed when he saw Gretzky. Cause they, my kids, <laughs> It was always Gretzky versus Gretzky. He's like, they both wore 99 and they played hockey. Anyway, all these people bugged him through the whole thing. Can I get a picture? And can you sign this book? And we didn't want to bug him, but we've idolized this guy. We had a life-size cutout of Gretzky in our basement, a Coke cutout when he was in the Kings. And so he got up to leave and I, I couldn't let Gretzky go without saying something. And I said to him, I said, look, I just have to tell you, I said, first off, we grew up 20 minutes away from you in Cambridge, just down the road from Brantford. But um, I just have to tell you, we've had so much pleasure watching you play. And uh, I'm just grateful for all you've done because it's been so great to watch you play. And so 
It's the day of the big game. He's got meetings to go to. And he paused, you know, I'm sitting there with my kids. And he pauses and he says, uh, I just love the game. He said, I just always love the game. And then, he, and then he had this conversation where he said, today's going to be such a great day. I mean, we got Ovechkin, we got Crosby, we got all great players. Are gonna, this is going to be a magnificent day. And he was so gracious, probably took five or ten minutes and talked. And then he left. And then my kids are teenagers, right? And my, one of them turns to me and he said, I can't believe you told Gresky he gives you pleasure. I mean, <laughs> their first response was to dig into me. So... <laughs> But it was, it was, that was our experience with Gretzky. So he's been, he's the, that's where the 99 comes from. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love it. I love that. You know, and I, uh, being a Canadian living abroad since 1997, I just, I, I am so connected to Canadian sports and in particular the CFL and, right. um, you know, playing football, growing up playing football in Canada and then watching every single Grey Cup and, you know, choosing to watch the, even though the Grey Cup was in November. You know, I always got a special rush from watching the Grey Cup, much more than the, the Super Bowl, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, true and through Canadian. So that's when I go back to Canada and I reconnect with my football alumni, we go back in, in the summers and we connect and we play golf together. And people always say to me, like, um, what's your problem? Not anymore. They used to. But what's your problem? What don't you like about Canada? Why did you why do you? choose not to live here anymore and I say because the world is such an amazing place our boys you know grew up in Japan and they've lived in China and they've lived all over the place so Mm. it's such an amazing experience but we're still very very much Canadian you know so when I hear stories like that and that that Mm. connection it's just uh it it makes my my heart glow so um to to close the show I just want to ask you um when you look back on your career like one day when you're, I, I assume you're going to work until you can't work anymore. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you look back on your career, what are you most proud of? And what is the legacy that you want to leave? Behind? Well, I'm most proud of my marriage, which is not a career thing. Um, but uh, I'm blessed to have a wife with a lot of patience and, uh, I've evolved into being the kind of person that is probably going to be able to have a good marriage. And so I took a lot of work. I had to do a lot of changing and improving, but I'm probably most proud of that. It's not a professional thing, but as, as I thought about the word pride, I feel kind of like the work I do, it's almost not me. It's almost like, first off, I interview all kinds of people, other people's work. I'm just kind of a vehicle for sharing ideas, but I do synthesize things and recreate them kind of the way Coleridge would say you should, I guess. So that's imagination. Um, I feel we created this idea of instructional coaching and it's had an impact on life and in schools. And I think now I don't need to have credit for it. And other people were talking about similar kinds of things. But I, I in, in mind, I feel like we put that... What I wanted to do was... When I wrote the book Instructional Coaching, I wanted to create something like professional learning community. So looking at Rick DeFore's work, I said, it'd be cool to write a book like that that creates something that happens in schools. And that's kind of what happens. So I'd say that's probably it. That's probably the thing. Uh, in terms of legacy, I want to create a, a company that's driven, morally driven company that lasts for hundreds of years and 
continually makes things better for kids and adults, but particularly for children. And, you know, and our, our mission is a cliche-ish sounding thing, but it is what drives everything we do. Excellent instruction every day in every class for every student everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's in Dar es Salaam or if it's in um, Detroit. Uh, every kid everywhere should have excellent instruction, and they should have the, in every class. And so with that, we're like, if it's on a scale of 1 to 10, we haven't hit 2 yet in terms of doing that. But we're not a 1 anymore. You know, we're learning a lot. and But I want a company that can learn and grow and share those ideas. And that's probably the long-term legacy. That's probably the legacy I'm hoping for. Oh, beautiful. Um, Jim, it's been a pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. I was looking forward to it. And uh, I hope to meet you one day in person. Uh, I know with the, the way COVID has gone, you're not running face-to-face workshops right now. But um, hopefully one day we can meet in person someplace in the world. It's going to happen. I'm actually very optimistic about 2021. I think it's going to be a series of, right now in North America, in the United States, we're going through a hard time, but I, and I think it could get worse before it gets better, but I do think it's going to get better. I think by the end of 2021, there'll be great cause for hope. That's my, that's my belief. There's, there's too many good things that are going to happen. Yeah, great. So, Jim, I'm going to close off the show, and then I just want to say goodbye to you. Okay, so everybody, thank you uh, very much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Jim Knight. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.